0: If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We are in chapter 11, don't worry. We're not going back in time. But I need to read Hebrews ten thirty-two through 39 first to give us some sense of the purpose of the author in the verses that we'll be covering in chapter 11. Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And now we come to our text, skipping forward, beginning in verse 13. These all died they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the author comes to verses 13 through 16, and he's essentially uh, following through with this flow of argumentation that we picked up and saw, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And it is through faith that the people of old received their condemnation, uh, commendation. And yet, these all, meaning all the people of old, died in faith, not having received the things promised. And if you're following through with the flow of uh, redemptive history as recorded by the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, he essentially inter- interrupts himself. He's following through and he's, he's, he's speaking about Abraham. And in the middle of his reflections on the life of Abraham and Sarah, he interrupts himself, himself and gives us verses 13 through 16. And he resumes with Abraham in verse 17. Paul does, does this sometimes. He'll interrupt himself for a, a specific uh, purpose, as does John and the other biblical authors. And I think what he's doing is he's telling us his point. He's, he's showing us his cards. It's like a, in your, your favorite show, you know, you know, it's an important episode when it begins with narration or in the middle of the episode, the narrator steps in to tell you how you ought to think of something. He's, he's showing us his cards. He's telling us his point here with these verses. He's spilling the beans a little bit, if you will, because he knows that we run the risk of getting distracted by each of these individuals that he's talking about. We can, or we run the risk of, losing sight of the forest for the trees with each of these people. And so right in the middle of his discussion or reflection on the life of Abraham, he interrupts himself and tells us what his point is. So it's great when the Bible does that, right? When it tells you what the point is. And that's what this verse is. And so there's a lot of weight and significance to this passage. But it's important that we ask, this is all by way of introduction, speaking of the context of this passage, before we get into the exegesis of it and the explanation of it. Why pause in the historical flow at this point? It's not halfway. He doesn't wait until the end of the patriarchal period, right? He could have just waited until after Jacob or or the 12 tribes he could have stopped there before going into the people and Moses why in the middle of the life of Abraham interrupt himself to say this at this point the author of hebrews is not clumsy okay that's that's my assumption he's he's brilliant okay as i've spent now 2 years Getting to know this guy and his mind and how it works and how the Holy Spirit used his skill to communicate the truth of God to us, he's smart. He didn't do this on accident. I think there are at least three reasons why he might have paused right here to give us his purpose. The first is the birth of Isaac itself. If you think about it, think about the birth of Isaac. God is beginning a major shift of making good on his promises. In a way that that hasn't yet happened in the entire flow of redemptive history. Prior to the birth of Isaac, you have a lot of waiting, a lot of patience, and the best things that happen are really being spared from judgment. Like, right? We think of Noah and the building of the Ark, but it's not like that that was some great covenantal purpose of salvation. It was he was being preserved from judgment, right? That's the overall tone. So build a boat so you're not destroyed. But with the birth of Isaac, you have a shift. It's like the first major win, if you will. It's similar to D-Day, okay? I'm I'm somewhat of a nerd, so flow with me. There there were victories in World War II in the European and Pacific campaigns, theaters, before D-Day. But with D-Day, you had a major shift. Because of the Allied victory on that day, that long-stretched-out battle. It was marked. So the birth of Isaac, because of Abraham and Sarah's age, and because it, it wasn't just off in the future somewhere, we'll hope in God, it, it, it happened. There was the son of promise born to Sarah being 90 and Abraham being 100. Scott explained to us last week, it's a big deal. So he interrupts right there to summarize the history of the people of God and to show us this is his plan all along. The second reason I think he pauses here is that this is the first mention in the flow of redemptive history in Hebrews 11 of the descendants. If you look back up in verse 12, he says, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So this place is where all of the children of Abraham, which we know from Paul means those who share the faith of Abraham, are mentioned. So this is, where, this is where the whole thing is included. This is the first point where it's no longer just individuals who have faith and the implications for their life, but through Abraham, all the nations of the earth. And then the last reason, I think, is because of what he says next. So that was all for context. Now let's get to the actual words. These all died in faith. I hope you can sense the jarring nature of that statement. If you've been following along with the flow of the text up until this point, this is surprising. This isn't what we would typically say. And the rest of our time we'll figure out how important it is for us that he says this. It's as if to remind us as he's reminding his hearers, look, look at these men and women in the past, look at their faith and look at how they persevered. He's reminding us they died. We have a tendency to be nostalgic about our heroes, especially, can you imagine if you were a Jew and how significant in your life the patriarchs would be, these great people, your direct ancestors, Especially a Jew brought up in a Hellenistic society, right? They're, they're brought, the, the things that make you different are even more special to you if the whole world is not like that. So a Jew living in a Greek culture loves his heritage and, and the, the lineage that exists in the depth of history. And he reminds them, even Abraham, even Abraham, the man of faith, the friend of God, the hero and patriarch of Israel died. He died. And this statement, dying in faith, it carries the sense of in the midst of, or as they were trusting, as they were believing, they died. It's a startling statement. Because if you go back to the first verses of chapter 11, for by it, meaning by faith, the people of old received their commendation, so you're, it, it sets an expectation that, that it's going to be better for them. It's going to be good for them, right? It's going, to, it's going to end well for those who persevere with faith. And now here, they died. Think of the hearers, the, the people that the author of Hebrews is writing to. They're wanting to go back. They're, they're tired of being persecuted as Christians. They're wavering in their commitment to Christ they're being fickle in their commitment to, be, uh, to openly declare themselves as having allegiance with Christ. And it's really tough for them. And they're, they're wondering if they just should just go back the old way. Maybe it would be better if we joined the lineage of the Jewish heritage again. And he points back, yeah, but Abraham died. And so Abraham's experience as one who had faith in God and yet didn't turn out that well for him in the final analysis because he died, then your experience isn't that much different than his. If you've got to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ and eventually die for his namesake, that's not that much different, is it? Because the legacy of Abraham and those who followed after, every single one of them died. And this is troubling for a few reasons, and I mean, we we can become so jaded. I, I had the opportunity to uh, preach my grandmother's funeral a few months ago, and my encouragement to the people who were there was to say, "Look, don't don't let yourself become so jaded that that you come to think that this this is normal, that this is okay." She loved the Lord. She trusted in Him, and she died. Something has gone horribly wrong. And further, they died while trusting in God without getting all that was promised. That's the stunning thing. And here we can let the author of Ecclesiastes speak to us. Coaleth, as he's called. How the righteous dies just like the wicked. Ecclesiastes 7.15 In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life by his evil doing. Does our experience not confirm that very thing? Ecclesiastes 8.14, there is vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Ecclesiastes 9.2, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one, so is the sinner. And he who swears as he who shuns an oath. And if you have recently read Genesis 4, you know that long sequence of the pronouncement of the fulfillment of God's warning that in the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will die So-and-so lived this many years, he had this many sons and daughters, and he died. And -and so-and-so, he died. And -and so-and-so, he died, he died, he died, he died. And it keeps on going and going and going. And we could come to this text and just say, and Abraham lived such and such a number of years, had these sons and daughters, and died. And Moses lived such and such a number of years and had this many sons and daughters and he died. And David lived such and such a number of years and he died. And he died and he died and he died. died. These all died in faith. That's the point he's making. He wants it to sting a bit. And what is our response? Here are a few that are often offered. Bad things happen to good people. We live in a fallen world. Well, they lived a good life. I want you to see why these are all totally inadequate. Those postures, those attitudes. Because what is at issue here mainly is not about our pain or pleasure or blessing. It is about God's righteousness. This is the problem. It's not just, oh, death is really bad, so it'd be nice if that wouldn't happen. Uh we got to figure something out. The problem is, the one who trusts in God, the same event happens to both the wicked and the righteous. It calls into question God's righteousness and God's faithfulness. The man of faith, the man you promised God to give all the blessings, he died just like the rest of us? We read Psalm 22 at the beginning This is essentially what the opponents of David are saying of him. If you want to turn there, I want you to see this. And it's important because Jesus, not necessarily that he's in a Scripture quoting mood, but he says the same thing as the psalmist does. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22. Look at verses 7 and 8 though. All who see me, Mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's a taunt, do you see? And that's exactly what the crowds were saying of Jesus. He trusted in the Lord. He says he knows that let, let God rescue him if God really delights in him. If your faith really pleases the Lord, then, then we're facing the same fate So what does this have to do with us? On one level, he's clearly speaking about the patriarchs, right? Those who actually lived in the land in tents. Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, and Jacob. But on a deeper level, I think he's referring, in a sense, to all the people in this chapter. Specifically because of the content of verse 39. But further, with the mention of the descendants. And the fact that the whole chapter is meant to encourage the church specifically the people he's writing to and through them to us. When he says, all these, or these all, died in faith, it can practically stand for all the people of God. It might be, you could even think of it this way. All of the people of God continue to die in faith. Even as Paul says, sheep to be slaughtered, killed all the day long, Either way, the statement does apply to us because even as the author of Hebrews says, says, it is appointed unto man to die once and then comes the judgment. The one who has faith dies in faith. And this is a striking thing to call attention to. And it's a problem from an objective vantage point. The righteous person, even the one who is righteous by faith, the one in whom God's soul delights, dies. We're no exception. How the righteous one dies just like the wicked. So we are face to face, not just with a sad reality, but with a legitimate concern about the faithfulness of God. And that's, I'm phrasing that very carefully, but it is a legitimate question to ask because the Bible itself, the biblical authors ask that question. They raise the question in this context. If the same event happens to both the wicked and the righteous, then is God really righteous? We might expect relief from this, from the implications of this, but then he goes on, not having received the things promised. This, on the one hand, intensifies the problem, but you'll begin to see it also shows us the path of the solution, the answer to this problem. The stunning nature of this passage is only intensified. What might you expect him to say if, if you were writing Hebrews or if you were reading it for the first time or sitting in the congregation that was going to in the house church where you were going to hear this for the first time? If you heard the beginning of verse 13, all these died in faith, you would probably want to say something like, but they did receive the things promised or they died in faith after receiving the things promised. That's obviously not what he says, The logic of this passage is building to something. And there is a cheap way to interpret Hebrews 11. Here's the cheap way to say, here are great people you admire. They lived in faith. God commended them for their faith. So be like them, live by faith. That's a cheap, surface-level way of viewing this passage. These verses, specifically verses 13-16 through and verse 39, won't let us read it that way. The point is this. This is the not cheap way of reading it. They died while they were trusting God without getting everything that was promised. And it's not just like these are some random promises out there. These are the promises that God himself made. So how can he say that? I'm sorry, if you can tell, the printer may have eaten one of my pages of notes. So they died in faith without receiving the things that were promised. And this is important for us to ask. Why is he saying that when he's just given us a description of Isaac? Isaac was born, Isaac was given, he was the son of promise. And he immediately says they died not having received the promise. Part of the reason is because they understood the nature of faith in and of itself. If you believe in God, then you know for certain that the one who trusts in God will be delivered. It's not going to end like it does just like the wicked. It can't. Because God is faithful. He's all died in faith, not having received the things promised. This is another reason why I think he chose the discussion about Abraham as the place to interrupt himself. As Brother Nathan said a few weeks ago, everyone wants to claim Abraham. And here's the point. Abraham obviously did not get everything he was promised. When God comes to Abraham, He promises him what? To make of him a new nation, a new people, that he would inherit the land. And yet, as Abraham dies, the only promise that God has delivered on is Isaac. And there he is, living and dying on his deathbed as a sojourner and an exile. And this is a side note. This is part of the reason why the author's discussion of Melchizedek is so important. There's something greater than Abraham going on here. And here we need to remind ourselves, it is God who is making these promises. So it's not just that they died. It's that they died without having received the promises that God Himself made. This is why we need to understand faith is not trite. It is not blind or simple. It is glorious and miraculous. And we shouldn't bludgeon those who struggle with faith. It's easy to say that uh, people should get it together or stop being so depressed. Can't you just have faith in God? But we need to understand that in the face of the data, without rock solid understanding of god and how he works faith is impossible to maintain because the wicked die and the righteous die faith while not blind is very hard and here's where it makes these men and women truly outstanding this this is the point this is from a commentary I was reading to help me with this. He says, Yet these early exemplars of faith did not allow even the event of death to call into question the validity of the promise. Even as they're staring down the barrel of death itself, God has made these promises and they say, God will deliver. God will make right on his promises. He will make good on his promises. He will not let it go without him being seen as faithful. But having seen them, he continues, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Here we get more of a shift from the problem or the complaint or the case that might be leveled against God's faithfulness to the answer. There's a little bit of a problem here because we can't go back to a place in the Old Testament with all of these people in mind and see where they saw and greeted these things from afar. They don't speak explicitly that way in most cases. We can see it in the case of a few, like Moses, Abraham, and David specifically. But the point being made here is is a conclusion on the basis of the nature of faith in and of itself. When the author says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's the point. If you trust in God, you can almost set aside the content of any of the promises that God made to all these different people in Hebrews 11. Just set it aside. They had trust in God. They believed in God. They had faith in Him and the 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 posture of that conviction is that God will reward me. It doesn't matter what promises he may or may not have made. Like in the case of Abel, and I think this is one of the reasons he starts with Abel, there's no covenant given to Abel, but he trusted in God. And so he believes that he will, in fact, be rewarded for his faith. The promise of God to the one who has faith, doesn't matter what covenant you might be under or what period of redemptive history you exist in, is this. Seek me and you will find me. Even as David himself says in Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And the banner that is hung in our entryway is Psalm 34 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So, for the one who has faith, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ now, but not fully, not yet. And it's good news, right? It's a good thing to hear that this isn't yet it, okay? This year has underscored that for us quite a bit. That this isn't it. We look for something better. So we have, it is all ours. It is really ours in Christ, but not fully, not yet. They are as good as yours, though, because you see them with the eyes of faith and know that they will be all yours because Christ is yours and you are His. But since this is the case, and because our hope is from afar, think of that, he, they saw them and greeted them from afar. They they believed that God would make good on His promises even though He had not yet fulfilled all His promises. So on their dying Bed. They are looking from afar, greeting the things that God had promised to them, yet not receiving them. And that's exactly the position that we're in. And therefore, we are not home. In the case of the fathers, we do have places where they talk about the fact that they're Sojourners, they acknowledged or confessed. The word, the word is almost the same as a confession. They confessed that they were strangers and exiles. And Abraham says in Genesis 23:4, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. And it's the same with others of the patriarchs in different ways. But the author is making a broader point about the posture of faith for all of these men and women, like David. They understood themselves to be sojourners or exiles. Think of Simeon. I love this story. I'll throw it in all the time, but Simeon in the temple. He's there. They have the land. They have the city. The temple is beautiful. And yet, he still needs to see the salvation of the Lord. And he's almost insistent God, you can't let me die until I see your salvation. And because this is how the author is encouraging his hearers, the Christian community, then it also applies to us today. Even though we're not Jews, and many of us probably have no desire to permanently live in Israel, right? They were not made perfect, this is verse 39 they were not made perfect apart from us, but we ourselves have not yet come into this city. Not yet. We are strangers. We are exiles. We are sojourners. This is a pattern that's been going for a long time. Abraham himself living in the land of promise as an exile. David, before he uh, comes into his kingdom, he's anointed king. And for a long period of time, he's just going around as a brigand in his own country, even though he's been anointed king. And Jesus Himself, when He walks into the temple or into the city, what should have been a real triumphal entry, His people welcoming Him and embracing Him as their Messiah King, they reject Him and He dies outside the city. This is the essence of the encouragement from the author to his hearers. Take heart. Hold fast to Christ. You are exiles. God will deliver on His promises, but not yet. So begin thinking about this. The majority of the applications today will be in connection with this idea of our being sojourners or exiles. And that might not sound very encouraging, right? Someone's suffering, someone's going through a lot, and you say, Just, just hang on, don't worry, you're an exile. That's not a very encouraging thing to say to someone. But this is the only way to make sense of the life that we live and the world that we see. And at the same time, trust in the faithfulness of God. That question that is raised, is God faithful if the same event happens to the righteous as happens to the wicked? If all die in faith, what's the difference? We're exiles. So yeah, it's going to happen to us the same as it does them. But... God is faithful because this is my Father's world. The meek shall inherit the earth, but not yet. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. This is a difficult text because no one, as far as Hebrews 11 is concerned, has said anything. The only one who might have said anything is the blood of Abel. And as far as Genesis con- is concerned, Abel doesn't say anything either. So what is he saying that these people speak thus? What is the speaking he's referring to? I think he refers, he's referring, at least in the life of the patriarchs, things that they explicitly say, like Abraham, I am a sojourner. But more imper- importantly, it's their manner of life. If you look closely at the life of the people that he's speaking about, their life testifies that they understand themselves to be exiles. Their manner of life shows that their longing was for something not just different and better, but something they could see through faith. Their hope was not in the promises that were fulfilled in their lifetime. Let me say that again. Their hope was not in the fulfillment of the promises that were given and fulfilled in their lifetime. They looked beyond the things that God gave them, like the birth of Isaac, or coming into the land, as we're going to get to. They looked beyond those fulfillments and knew that there had to be something better, something greater. And it says... For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. This could carry the sense that they're still seeking their own homeland. Had God not given it to them? Was Canaan not good enough? And the point is, no, it's not good enough. There's still death and there's a lack of God's presence. And the point here, I think, is this. It is right and logical for them to look for a better and more eternal homeland. Because God is a promise-keeping God. Think if you were Abraham. It's not an encouraging way to think this way. Oh, well, God promised to make of me a great nation. I didn't see it. And He promised me this land, but I didn't get it. At least my bones will disintegrate here after I'm dead and gone. That's not the heritage of the man who has faith. Here was his understanding on the basis of this text. Because God made these promises, not even death is going to stand in the way of his fulfillment of them. Because God left some promises unfulfilled, it is a guarantee that that, that death is not the end of the story. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And I think this functions as a proof for the statement he's just made. If Abraham or his descendants really just hated being in exile. And they just give up on the promise, he could have gone back to Haran or to Ur. But they didn't. Even though they increased in wealth, if they had gone back with all the camels and donkeys and sheep and servants and everything they had and all the wealth, they would have been like kings. But no, they decide to remain as exiles in the land of promise. And at one point, even Jacob himself does go back. He marries Rachel and Leah, and then he comes back to live in exile. Instead of being a lord or a king or having all that influence, he chooses to go back and live in exile. Because of their willingness and happiness to live as exiles, that becomes the most long-standing proof of their trust in God. This has immediate implications for us. I'll save those for the end. But begin to think in these terms. Hope that is real and trust and trust in God to fulfill His promises creates contentment, even an insistence on living as a sojourner or an exile. Our manner of life then can become our most powerful declaration of trust in God and confession of His faithfulness. Does your life reflect that? Again, too much application to get into here. We'll see that at the end. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. They desire a better country. What you have here is a kind of holy dissatisfaction. The best way I can think of uh, to to put this is that they're content to be discontented. Does that make sense? Why would they need to desire a better country? Were they being just picky? As we said before, death, the lack of the presence of God, maybe they were even reflecting on the oral tradition of the creation that was handed down and they... Knew the story of God's creation and presence with our first parents in the garden. And they knew that God's purposes and redemption had to be more than Palestine. And so they sought and desired a better country. And as if to make sure we avoid that pitfall and a few others, he says immediately, that is a heavenly one. They didn't just want the promised land to be really, really theirs. That's not what they're wanting. And this underscores the problem of the Pharisees' delusion. They just really wanted their land back. But the patriarchs show that they seek a better country, a heavenly one. This is stunning because he says that at least the patriarchs, at least Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by extension I think probably all of them, that they knew that they should seek a country, not the promised land. That's amazing. You can pick the best time. we mentioned David before, so I'll pick him. I think the, the height of David's reign is the best of times, in a sense, for the people of Israel. You've got a king after God's own heart, you have uh, the land, the Philistines are being pushed back, you have peace and security but in another sense, it was the worst of times. When we read that passage again, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple, it was somewhat the worst of times, because kings couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Prohibited by law. He'd be struck dead if he looked behind the veil. But David eagerly yearns for it. I want to be there. I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So he's, he's confessing his desire for the Lord and, and, and his desire for closeness with the Lord outstrips everything in the best of times. And he says the temple? The temple wasn't built until Solomon's day. So he has this understanding that there, there's this temple that even according to the pattern that was shown Moses. Moses was shown a copy of the heavenly realities. David understands, I want to go there. I want to be there that I can be with the Lord and, and gaze upon His beauty. It's not here. It's not in the tabernacle or whatever temple my son is going to build. It's not the land. It's there. It's the heavenly country that we've been promised. He was contented To be discontented his entire life. That's the life of a sojourner. And I think he means this for all God's people. David's just one example. God has reawakened and implanted desires in us that this world cannot fill. And so we do not and we should not try to fill them with the things of this world. So we too can be content to be discontented with a holy expectation for this better country. There's a tract written in the second century. This is after the time of the Apostles. It's important to understand that this perspective of of seeking the heavenly country, the heavenly city, that that is a perspective that is very easily lost. Late second century, we find this, a Christian rebuking other Christians. He says, you know that you who are servants of God are dwellers in a foreign land. For your city is far from this city, meaning Rome. If then you recognize your city, meaning capital C, heavenly city, in which you shall dwell, why do you prepare here fields and expensive displays and buildings and dwellings which are superfluous? The person who prepares these things for this city does not intend to return to his own city. And here is the big theological Conclusion: Because their lives demonstrated this holy dissatisfaction, this willingness to be content to be discontented. In faith, they insisted on seeking and waiting for a better country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. This is an obvious reference to his titles that he calls himself by. He calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he calls himself the God of your fathers. if you're reading along with us in our Bible reading plans, you can got to get a sense of why he says not ashamed. Because if you read some of their lives, that's some things to be ashamed of, is it not? And we can look back at the people in the Old Testament or people in the New Testament and just judge them like, man, they really had it messed up. They were messed up people. And I think that's inconsistent because of our own lives. There's a song I really like. says, Judas sold you for 30. I have sold you for less. Peter denied you three times. I've denied you more. And so it applies to us as well. And the heart of the encouragement is in spite of our failings, God is not ashamed to be called our God if we in faith seek the better country that He has promised to those who come after Him. It is as if the enemy would enter at this point and say, You, the Holy One, would call yourself His God? You, the I am, you would make yourself known as her God? These sinners who have profaned your name? And God's answer would simply be, yes, I will be known as his God. I will be known as her God. And it's not just for some random general reason If God were to explain why He is not ashamed to be called their God, I think it would be this, on the basis of this passage, because they trust Me. They are willing and eager to live their lives like I'm actually going to deliver on my promises. So set aside all of their sins, all of their failings, they trust Me and they're living their lives like I'm actually going to be a promise keeper in their lives. So I'm not ashamed to be called their God. That is why you must receive all the blessing because that's how God is, how He feels about His own namesake. That the one who trusts in Him will conquer. This is the opposite of God's lament in Isaiah. Who has believed our message? When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith? but his righteous ones shall live by faith. We have to say a few things about the city before we get to application. We won't spend a lot of time here. That's for chapter 12 to answer what is the nature of the city? What is the promise of this city? The point here is that God has in fact prepared a city for those who are seeking a better country. This is the city for those who have such a deep trust in God's faithfulness that we know that God's very best simply cannot be in this life. There is this posture of insisting on God's best and to receive his best, but not yet. Not here. Paul, the apostle, labors for the reward. It is not unchristian to seek the reward and to be dissatisfied and not only insist on, but expect God's best to be given to you. That is a Christian motivation. Because, not just because you want it, but because God has told you He will give it to you. And so to insist on God's best is not just a selfish desire. It is a desire for God to be seen as and known as a promise-keeping God. I must be infinitely blessed because God has said He will. But not yet. And the caution of this text is that the city is not here. It's not here. We have the promise... And having faith in God to fulfill His promise is secure and sure as having it already. But that's not yet. All this is true, and for now, though, we wait as exiles, as sojourners, as strangers, and aliens. So how does this immediately apply to our life? I'll give this to you in the form of a few questions. Is your manner of life proof that you trust in God to keep His promises? That's what's at issue here. That is what he is underscoring for his hearers. Their manner of life is proof even as they're not receiving all the promises that they believe beyond death that God is going to keep His promises. And so they're content to live as exiles. To ask it another way, are you content... And committed to living a life as an exile? Or have you returned to Haran and Ur? Or do you wish that life, the life of following Christ was not so costly? And here's maybe a test for you. A very practical, ground-level test. Do our decisions in the financial world Spectrum reflect a life of an exile? Does our spending and saving and investing reflect more of a here and now perspective or the life of an exile? Question two. What city are you more concerned about? The heavenly one or the earthly one? Or what homeland is more important to you, the heavenly one or the earthly one? What country is more important to you, the heavenly one or the earthly one? And don't answer these questions, only you can see into your heart and know the answer to these. But don't answer these questions with a Sunday school answer or what you hope is right about yourself. The claim here is that if the heavenly city, the heavenly country, the heavenly homeland is more important to you than the earthly one, or if it is the only one that is important to you, then you will begin to live your life as an exile, because here is not home. What do your anxieties, this is under the second question, what do your anxieties and sorrows show? Which homeland is more important to you based on the things that you're anxious about? uh, Anxiety and sorrow is a perfectly holy emotion if it's about the right things. Paul himself says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the sake of his brothers and sisters according to the flesh that they would be saved. What do your anxieties expose about your heart? What city, what nation, what country really matters to you? What are you deeply concerned about? What do our timelines and posts show in this matter? What country really matters to us? Question three. In what way... Let me ask it another way. What what does it say about our hope with the way we have responded to the pandemic? Is the way we have responded to the pandemic proof positive that we are strangers and exiles? Does our concern and eagerness about our heavenly citizenship hold a candle to the further fervor with which we will clamor and insist on our legal rights? Does our fear and concern about the plight of those who do not trust in God or His promises and who have rejected His offer of grace come close to holding a candle to the level of concern we have about our anxieties in the world? Does our eagerness to speak of this unimaginable blessing and hope we have of this eternal city and its King and all the truth about Jesus and his saving power come close to comparing how eager and downright zealous we are about talking about our political and pandemic opinions what we talk about reveals what's in our heart out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and I think at this moment, we could do very well, we would do very good to follow the, Apostles Paul, the Apostle Paul's example. I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Question four. This one is nuanced. So I, so I pray that you'll pay attention to this. This is very important. Have you spent so much thought rejecting bad teaching about God's blessing in this life that you're uncomfortable thinking about reward from God There's a lot of bad teaching out there about God's blessing is there not But Paul's example and the meaning of faith in Hebrews 11 is this that he who would believe he who would draw near to God must believe that he exists And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Paul speaks almost as if he has pushed all his chips into the middle of the table and says, I am seeking a reward. There is laid up for me a treasure, a reward, a crown. And Jesus himself is going to give it to me. Let's ask it this way. And just push the boundaries of whether or not we really believe in the truth of being united to Christ. What does Jesus deserve? Is there any blessing that Jesus does not deserve? Is there any blessing that it would be right to hold it back from Him in glory? Not at all. So, because of our faith union with Him and being in Christ, then you deserve all of them too. They're yours. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? This is how I know heaven or the eternal city must be truly wonderful and forever because all of the blessings that Christ has earned on the cross, He has now earned for you. There is an edge and a boldness to this posture of receiving blessing from the Lord. Consider this. Think about it this way. The Father Himself considers it just as improper for you to go without any blessing as He does when He considers Jesus Himself. That that His posture to you is that you deserve everything Christ deserves. That's the implication of our faith union with Him. If you're in Christ, it's yours. The reason we struggle, I think, to live with this confidence and why that is sadly not put forward as the, as the rebuke of the prosperity gospel preaching is that it takes more faith than even they could possibly comprehend to believe that. To believe that all things are yours in Christ demands huge faith compared to the the faith that they have, which is to say that it requires real faith. We're not talking about squeezing out a few more sweat drops of faith, praying for God to give us that vacation to Hawaii, right? We're talking about the eschatological hope of our glorious city to come. Faith trusts God to do this because He said He would do it. Do you, have you even thought of some of these promises? To the one who overcomes, I will grant that He will sit on my throne with me. It takes more faith. It takes real faith to believe that and to believe and have a posture of boldness that because God said it, you don't have a choice in the matter. It's not, it's not an issue of degrees. It's either you believe that God is going to deliver on His promise to the one who overcomes, or He's not. It has nothing to do with blessings necessarily in this life. You either believe that God's going to do it when you arrive, or you don't. And that faith then looks back and changes the way we live our lives as exiles because we know that our city, our country, our nation is there. Not here. Not yet. Number five, do you think of your brothers and sisters in this church as those who are exiles with you? This is one of the main encouragements of of this life that you don't have to be in exile alone. Only Jesus was ever the truly forsaken one. You've been given brothers and sisters to come alongside and sojourn with you and live in exile with you as we wait. And I think this has two effects. Two effects it will help us see how much we really need each other. When the world appeals to us or we don't feel or act on the real need we have for one another, the enemy creeps in and shows us, go back to Haran, go back to Ur, go down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe it's not worth it living life as an exile. And secondly, I think it gives us uh, patience towards one another. Do your expectations for what church ought to be, how good and how nice things are, reflect in understanding that we're exiles, that this isn't it. Things should be done well, and we should be good stewards. But it makes me sick to my stomach how much we equate God's blessing with a good building or good programs. Skill is important, but skill will always be second or third chair to a heart that yearns for God and a heart that trusts Him. And lastly, is this the life you want? For the believer, are you content to live a life of discontentment, not receiving all the promises, knowing that they're all afterward? Is that okay for you? That's the cost of discipleship. It's not necessarily that you're going to have to give everything up. You might. But you might live this life and have have a decent existence. The point is, you're not going to get the fullness here. Christianity comes with a label. Not yet. Is that okay with you? Or are you going to redefine Christianity so that the blessing is here and now? All of it. There are tons of blessings here and now, but not the best ones. Are you content to live as a sojourner and really understand and feel the significance of the weight of what the author is going to say in chapter 12? Here we have no lasting city. This is also a summons to those who do not trust in Christ. Regardless of if you believe in God or you don't, you look at the world and everyone knows there's a problem. Something has gone horribly wrong. And we all have different answers about what has really gone wrong. And we all have different answers about how to fix it. And Jesus says, I'm going to fix it and you can trust me. I'm going to fix it, but not yet. So the invitation to follow Christ isn't some mystical thing of believing certain truths and then you, you get some glow and then you're, you're considered holy or more pure in some s- special kind of category, not Gnosticism, okay? It is your trusting in His Word that He will make good on His promises. And even in the face of death, as it approaches you, as you see its day drawing near, you say, I trust in Him. That's the invitation to come to Christ, is, is not necessarily to sign a card or, or raise your hand or anything like that, but today, trust in Him fully, without any reservation. Let's pray. Father, great is Thy faithfulness. We believe, Father. Help our unbelief. Many in this room may be weak in faith. Father, I can't see into their hearts, but You know. By Your Spirit, awaken them to a clear vision of Christ so that they can respond in faith and rock-solid trust in Him. Give us the energy... And joy and unity we need to live as exiles. Let our life shine forth that here we have no lasting city. May we be salt and light in the earth, but not of the earth. And I pray these things for your glory in the person of your Son, Jesus. Amen.